0: The episode you are about to hear is part two on the eruption of Mount Tambora in 1815 and its immense effects around the world that lingered long into the Victorian period. If you haven't listened to part one, that's episode 13, please listen to that first. The ash and dust from Mount Tambora had spread out around the entire world by the winter of 1815 In the last episode, I described the enormous dust cloud in the Pacific. I made a mistake, though, apparently, when I got the location of Pittsburgh wrong, which is in Pennsylvania. Well done to eagle-eared listener Jonathan for spotting that. I apologise to all you lovely listeners who live in either Pennsylvania or Ohio. Both states are lovely, and one day I would love to visit both for beer and burgers. So here's hoping. I just also wanted to mention, before we get going, that the show now has a new logo and artwork. Don't worry, I haven't been bought out by Disney as a new addition to the Marvel Universe. It is just that I wanted something a bit brighter, and a bit more focused on Victoria. I'll miss the Lady of Shalott, as she got us on the air, but I love the new look, and oh, rob at totalis rancium, an immense thank you for the amazing design work. Also, a huge thank you for the most recent iTunes reviews by TigPack, HullH123, and Miss Pod a lot. I really love getting these reviews, and they help new listeners find the show. If you want to say a thank you to me for making the show, well, head to iTunes, make sure you are logged in, search for the Age of Victoria podcast. And click on reviews and ratings. And then click on write a review. Then tell the world what you think. Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Agam. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Quote, I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the motionless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day. Men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into selfish prayer for light End quote. Lord Byron, doom one to nine, The climate chaos in Europe in eighteen sixteen inspired Byron to write those chilling words. Now everyone would have to deal with the consequences and they are almost too vast to be believed at first. When talking about climate change, sometimes the small numbers can mislead people into thinking that the impact is also small. The world can seem so vast and immutable that the idea that a minor thing like a volcano in Southeast Asia could change the world's climates and up civilizations seems too fantastic. That's because the human mind is very geared to the immediate, the fight-or-flight response. We aren't very good with the idea of system changes and disruption. The year of 1816 is a powerful illustration of the wild effects small changes in climate numbers can have. It was unfortunate that the eruption occurred during a very vulnerable period in Europe. The continent was already experiencing a cold decade since 1810, and the previous volcanic eruptions had exacerbated this cooling trend. If these eruptions were like putting too much gasoline or petrol on the barbecue, well, the massive Mount Tambora eruption was like having the Air Force drop napalm on it. The scale of the eruption was cataclysmic, the release of aerosols disrupted the critical North Atlantic oscillation and the jet stream, changing the weather in Europe immensely. One immediate impact was to strengthen the polar vortex. This is a common outcome of disruptions to the jet stream. Some listeners might recall, in 2017 and 2018, North American temperatures plummeted as a result of just such a strengthening of the polar vortex caused by disruptions of the jet stream. Likewise, a weakened jet stream has been responsible for the incredible hot summer in Europe and the UK in 2018. The models of how changes to the jet stream affect weather are well established and you can see it both in the 1815-16 event and the more recent polar vortex events caused by climate change. Now, you might be jumping up Down in your seat, saying, Come on, how do we know what a volcano did to temperatures? Well, in the first place, we are really, really lucky that weather observation was a great passion in the 18th and 19th centuries. Thomas Jefferson was an obsessive observer of weather, even taking observations on the 4th of July 1776, a time when he was rather busy. The Royal Navy kept meticulous air and sea temperature records, along with notes on the weather and cloud formations. Even during battle, no interruption to recording was permitted, and their study of the trade winds and climate theory intensified throughout the 19th century. Many, many Americans, people like Timothy Dwight and many Europeans across the continent, religiously recorded temperatures and weather patterns. Ironically, there was an ongoing debate in New England about whether the climate was warming up and whether deforestation was to blame. Observers noticed the effect of deforestation on the soil how it increased the problem of drought and water runoff with drier soils expected to be warmer and therefore creating a feedback loop. The basics of climate change were being understood in the early 19th century, but a lot of the links and main causes were still unknown. The jet stream wouldn't even be discovered until after World War II. Modern scientists have measured the aerosol remnants of the eruption in ice core samples and lake sediments. They have also recorded the plummeting temperatures in the tree ring growth records. As solar dimming went into effect around the world in 1815, land and then sea temperatures dropped. Sunsets became increasingly red or orange and strange, enough to show up in analysis of artwork of the period. People became fearful of portents. There is even a popular supposition that the eruption might have influenced the weather the day and the night before the Battle of Waterloo destroying Napoleon's last fading hope of victory. Now, before we look into events on the ground, we need to have a quick think about famine. There's a fairly fashionable view that famines are only caused by political mismanagement or bad economic decisions. And there is always really enough food to feed people. It is just that bad economics means people can't afford the higher prices of food in times of scarcity. What you need to remember about this idea, which I'm not challenging, but I want to remind you is that it is mostly applicable to post-industrial societies, where human mismanagement is the trigger for most famines. In the pre-industrial world, and the Victorian era, absolute food supplies could be wiped out. Excessive rain, Flooding, drought, volcanoes, plague, deforestation, desertification, and inundation from the sea could mean that absolute food levels declined precipitously. In Britain, the great struggle of the day in 1815 was dealing with the post Napoleonic war economy and the increasingly dysfunctional royal family. On a continent wrecked by war, A series of poor harvests had made the populations immensely war-weary and fragile. Now millions of soldiers were being discharged and the civilian authorities would have to integrate them back into economies that badly needed rebuilding. This was difficult as most of the ruling classes across Europe mostly had little to no interest in the welfare of the general population provided. Overall economic wealth of the nation territories was maintained. Free market economics was the ruling philosophy in Britain. The market would determine people's monetary worth. Most educated people thought government interference in the economy would always make things worse, and the aristocracy were habitually paternalistic at best or callously indifferent at worst. Britain as a whole enjoyed a good harvest in the autumn of 1815. It was the calm before the storm. Winter in England seemed colder than usual. March 1816 saw some recovery with excessive rains. Then, as growing season of 1816 began, April saw snow showers, preventing travel in some places. Now this delayed the growing season. It wasn't extreme. Scotland had a miserable freezing winter and lots of storms. Even in May, conditions didn't seem to improve in Scotland. Across Europe in May, snows fell. Farmland across the United Kingdom remained unproductive. And the weather threw great, great lashes of snow and sleet and rain at farmers. The Royal Cornwall Gazette raised concerns about farmers having to give up on some Crops. Unfortunately, the government was led by the mediocre Lord Liverpool, with Lord Castlereagh periodically usurping his meagre authority. King George III descended further into blindness and irreversible madness, whilst the Prince Regent, the future George IV, became increasingly fat, extravagant, and despised. By March 1815, the Prince had racked up personal debts of over one million. £480,600 a sum of money that was simply mind-boggling at the time. For comparison the HMS Caledonian one of the finest first-rate warships ever built for the Royal Navy in the age of sail cost £96,386 to build and another £6,711 to fit out. In other words the Prince Regent's debts could have covered the cost of a world-class battleship and had changed to perhaps build a supporting frigate and operate them both. His debts were nothing like as much in the national interest of the United Kingdom either. There's a great quote here about the state of Britain in 1816. Quote, Liverpool entered 1816 facing a host of problems as Britain made the transition from war to a peacetime economy. A trade recession, caused in part by the termination of wartime contracts, forced numerous businesses to cut wages or lay off workers and others to declare bankruptcy. The ranks of the unemployed swelled further as the government rapidly demobilized the army, throwing more than a third of a million men into the labor market. End quote. The year without summer, 1816, and the volcano that darkened the world and changed history by Klingerman. It was in this atmosphere that debate raged over the Corn Laws. They were designed to keep grain prices high by preventing imports. They weren't meant to punish the poor per se. Instead the idea was that they kept British farms in production. The Corn Laws prevented the importation of grain unless British grain prices fell below a certain level essentially acting as a subsidy for farms that wouldn't be able to stay afloat without them. The knock-on effect was that the poor paid a higher price for grain, and as grain was a huge portion of their entire spending, the high prices were both aggressive and punitive. Still, rural farms were major employers and the main food source, and the British government had to keep them in business. The problem was that the effect was far beyond keeping them in business, and far more about lining the pockets of already rich landowners. Riots broke out in Bridport, Dorset, and then in Bury St Edmunds. Demobilised soldiers in East Anglia were hit by the collapse of the old cottage-based spinning industry as a result of the Industrial Revolution, and also a massive collapse in wages as well as skyrocketing food prices. In Norfolk, nearly 1,500 people armed with improvised weapons raised flags saying bread or blood before looting shops and farms for food as well as attacking the local gentry who had had to call out the militia. The town of Ely was also rioting for food. Eventually the local magistrates had to call out not the local militia but the yeoman cavalry supported by professional troops from the Royal Dragoons. Ominously for the authorities, the rioters barricaded themselves into the tavern and it appeared shades of the French Revolution were in danger of sweeping across the country. The troops had to storm the tavern, killing one rioter. Eighty were arrested and five were hanged. Onto this dangerous situation of desperate hunger, unemployment and wage collapse the government response days before the Bridport riot was to vote to spend tens of thousands of pounds on wedding gifts to the Prince Regent's daughter, Charlotte. One landowner spoke from many of the ruling class when he grumbled, quote, the main root of evil is in the taxes, end quote. There was no thought really from the establishment of any kind of poor relief. Some of the population though were getting utterly desperate roaming the country for support, or hoping the Prince Regent would take up their cause, Prince Regent was told by Parliament the government had already done everything it could, and that the only real remedy was to give things time to improve. His reply spoke volumes, as he lamented, quote, the distresses of some classes of the people, and trusted that they would bear them with fortitude and energy, End quote. That's a hard message to hear from a man of incredible wealth, immense debts, and who was so fat he had to be wheeled up a ramp in a special chair just in order to mount a horse. And it was onto this fragile country with a dysfunctional government and a despised monarchy that the climate devastation was really about to bite, as wet cold spring turned into wet cold summer, even by English standards. Some of the press began to worry about the next harvest. They couldn't know it, but wild swings were occurring within the jet stream, causing mass climate destabilisation across Europe and North America. It rained almost daily, and even in mid-July, storms brought more rain and hail, and even total darkness in parts of Scotland. Some of the smarter economists, like Thomas Malthus, David Ricardo knew that the situation was teetering on the brink of disaster throughout the United Kingdom, but they couldn't think of any real alternatives to the laissez-faire hands-off approach of the government. By the end of July, the Anglican Church was officially praying to God for relief from the weather. Rain, hail, landslides, and flooding continued to ruin crops across the entire of the British mainland and Europe. Shockingly to many English tourists they found the situation in Europe was even worse than in the United Kingdom. France remained under occupation straining food supplies to breaking point and it was in post-Napoleonic political crisis. Food riots broke out across France and Belgium. This crisis of 1816 and 1817 has been called the last great subsistence crisis of the Western world. It was the last real time in Europe when there was an absolute lack of food on a massive scale. The knock-on effect on British trade was catastrophic. Two-thirds of jobs were lost on the London docks. 10,000 servants were reported as being out of work. And if the official response was poor, at least some dukes, senior churchmen and reform campaigners, began meeting to try to arrange private charity relief. The need was desperate. In one parish alone, 800 men queued for meagre relief supplies of bread and cheese. Remember, this kind of suffering can't be waved away. person whose farm has been devastated, and perhaps whose employer, a tenant farmer, has left him unemployed, had nowhere to turn. The situation for the casual labourers was even worse. There were thousands in this situation. Eventually, hunger and starvation will override any kind of obedience to law. Imagine you were a magistrate, and you tell a man who is watching his family starving to death in front of him that is fine, because it would be immoral for the government to interfere with the economy, or for him to steal money or property or food from the rich aristocrat who is spending it on wine and lace, that's not how humans work. Eventually there comes a snapping point. It had happened in France, in the French Revolution, and Britain seemed to teeter on the brink. Now let's step back and ask why the ruling class responded this way to the crisis leaving aside the moral consideration of what kind of person would let people starve to death if they could help stop it, especially with little real impact on themselves, look instead at the incredible short-sightedness of it. What is it that made the ruling class in Britain so secure in the idea that they could continue as things were? I think a lot of it comes down to the importance society of the time placed on hierarchy, the rigid worldview that had been internalised at all social levels. The British establishment worldview couldn't flex to view poverty as anything but a moral failure, rather than as a result of massive structural inequalities and devastating climate change. At the end of August more snow was added to the misery of the almost constant rains sweeping mainland Britain. Even the normally chirpy establishment newspaper, the Times, began to allow hints that all was not well, but still maintained the line that the wheat harvest had been bountiful. This was either deluded or dishonest. Fake news of the highest order. The government duly attempted a cover-up, by suppressing reports into crop yields and conditions as they were so alarming. Crop after crop was lost, and any hope of a good late harvest evaporated. Canterbury alone suffered economic losses of around £70,000. The philosopher James Mill wrote to the economist Ricardo, quote, The corn here is absolutely green, Nothing whatsoever in the ear, and a perfect continuance of rain and cold. There must now be of necessity a very deficient crop, and very high prices, and these, with an unexampled scarcity of work, will produce a degree of misery, the thought of which makes the flesh creep on one's bones. One third of the people must die, and it will be a blessing to take them into the streets and highways and cut their throats, as we do with pigs. End quote. It wasn't just the British mainland, though, that was affected. Ireland also suffered terribly. The effects of Mount Tambora were beginning to be felt in Ireland as early as January 1816, when ferocious storms wrecked the seahorse transport ship in Traymore Bay, killing 363 people, and tragically, agriculturally fragile Ireland was hit with devastating force. I do want to emphasise that when I'm talking about Ireland now, I'm giving you a really brief skim of the surface. Ireland has a long and complicated history, and 19th century Irish society, geography and economics were incredibly complicated, and are often far too much the subject of historical stereotyping or romanticising about a huge subject. In 1815, around 80% of the rural population of Ireland were incredibly poor tenant farmers and labourers who even in the best years hovered over the brink of ruin. Marginal farms had been brought into production by richer members of the tenant farmer class and the Anglo-Irish gentry during the boom times of the Napoleonic Wars, which had now turned to bus. Almost all of Ireland was dependent on land well, in some form, whether rich or poor, almost everything came back to land. The gentry owned it, and took out huge loans on it, whilst providing jobs and local spending. The middle class did the day-to-day tenant farming, and the great mass of the population did the labouring. Vast gulf existed, as the Anglo-Irish landowners often only spoke English, whilst the main of the population spoke Irish. Each feared and hated the other to a degree. But I do want to remind you, not to read back from the Great Famine of 1845, also known as the Irish Potato Famine, or the Great Dying, and this event, They were two very different events, with very different causes. The Irish potato famine hit an already fragile society on its main crop, which had come to be over-relied on by the very poorest of the population. Whereas the famine of 1816 hit the entire of Europe, across every kind of plant and animal farming, hitting all classes. In normal times, Ireland was prosperous agriculturally, and didn't have an unusual history of famines compared to the rest of Europe. The effect of the Great Famine sometimes distorts the history of Ireland, and makes it easy to assume that the whole history of Ireland was one of poverty and starvation. It wasn't, and Ireland was regarded in many ways as agriculturally rich. The reliance on the potato meant that populations in Ireland had increased rapidly by 1816, yet society rested on a fragile base. The land, even in good years, could only just support the growing population, as land became increasingly subdivided between growing families. As new generations inherited the land, it was split up between them, leading to more people on smaller and smaller areas. Now the potato allowed a family live on a small area of land, but it focused their diet on potatoes, cows, chickens and pigs. This increased reliance on the potato even more at the bottom of society and stored up trouble for the future. But it wasn't the primary cause of the famine in 1816. The massive population kept wages low as well. As America became more prosperous, Ireland exported less to the United States, leaving it achingly dependent on trade with mainland Britain. The recent Act of Union hadn't helped Ireland either. When Ireland became part of the United Kingdom, the Irish Parliament was eventually abolished and Irish MPs were granted seats in the Westminster Parliament. While some in Ireland were initially excited about this, since it gave them access to the ruling parliament of one of the most powerful nations in the world, it had some huge drawbacks. Firstly, Irish MPs were hugely outnumbered, so although they could now raise Irish issues on a larger stage, they had less voting power to make changes. Secondly, the Irish were seen as culturally and socially distinct so they couldn't operate the power and patronage back-channels to circumvent these problems, like the English MPs. Thirdly, it meant that local understanding and connections to government were lost. And fourthly, Ireland had become part of the same domestic market as the rest of the United Kingdom. Its textile workers and farmers were in direct competition with their fellow workers In mainland England, Scotland and Ireland had slightly different economies, so they weren't quite in the same market competition. But parts of Ireland did have an industrialising urban base similar to England, but it couldn't easily compete with the established large-scale mills in the north of England. There were also substantial numbers of Irish cottage-based weavers who were facing the same problems as their English cottage-based weaver counterparts. Also, please put to one side the idea that Ireland was overpopulated. The idea of overpopulation is a difficult one. is isn't a case of having too many people, or too many babies. It depends greatly on how much food can be produced, energy needs of the people, and the wider economy. The rural Irish population was considered a backwards by many tourists and the standards of housing were dreadful in comparison to more prosperous towns. But it is interesting to note that the Irish population as a whole was regarded as well-fed and healthy. Reliance on the potato earlier than mainland Britain meant that overall calorie intake was quite high And compared favourably to the rural poor in England, the fantastic Irish History Podcast has looked at this in a lot of depth. So do check it out, and we will do a deep dive in our future episodes. What is striking, though, is just how fragile the Irish economy in 1815 and 16 was, how dependent it was on a few key areas, how dysfunctional the political structures were, especially with absentee landlords. This was made worse by poor and often repressive government from Westminster. The overall impression of Ireland in 1816 is one of a socially unsettled country that didn't have the economic and agricultural resilience to cope with major shocks. The enormous social tensions in Ireland meant that the British authorities were mostly focused on keeping order. Crime and disorder can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, though. There had been centuries of conflict between the English and native Irish, often along sectarian and religious lines, and there had been recent violent uprisings, which the British viewed as treasonous, or at the very least criminal, and it is worth bearing in mind that during the Napoleonic Wars, some members of the Irish societies had formed alliances with the French and assisted with a French invasion. So, the British viewed some of the loyalty of the Irish as highly suspect. The main establishment authorities, including men like Sir Robert Peel, would come to Ireland expecting to find rampant crime, find it, and assume that this was the cause of the problems in Ireland and then focus on the crime. This increased tensions, fueling the cycle. Innate distrust and prejudice against native Catholics only made things worse. Whilst Irish gangs and secret societies rioted for good reasons and bad, often robbing and intimidating the law-abiding, British government reprisals could be extremely brutal and occasionally indiscriminate. Worsening relations the British monarchy was in an especially difficult position when it came to Catholic Ireland. The four Georges and William IV, all from the House of Hanover, the claim of the Hanoverians to the English throne was based on the explicit claim to be Protestant monarchs, not Catholics. It was linked to the claim that the only other royal house that could have claimed the English throne the House of Stuart, could not legitimately do so because it was Catholic. That might sound trivial to us, but it had huge implications. If the Hanoverians, for instance, supported Catholic rights or emancipation in Ireland, they were undermining effectively their own claims to the right of the English and Scottish thrones. After all, if Catholics were entitled to equal treatment and freedoms, then surely there was no basis for the House of Stuart not to have retained the throne, and then that would make them the ruling house. This was a real bind for the conservative classes, including men like Sir Robert Peel. And, in Ireland, men like Sir Robert were often too detached from the reality on the ground as it affected the bulk of the rural Irish population. The rain was decimating crops with over 143 days of rain in a row, totaling 31 inches. The nationalist Daniel O'Connell was horrified at the conditions, and even members of the gentry were facing ruin. The climate disruption triggered one of the great demographic earthquakes in history. Irish people who could began the first major emigration to the United States, but also to the cheaper Canada. At Peel's annoyance, it was the richer Protestants who left. He would have preferred it to have been from the mass of the southern rural poor, ease the pressure on food supplies. He had a hope that it would reduce the death rates. They had no idea of the terrible situation in the United States, nor did the emigrants. Sadly for many of them, fleeing didn't bring them to safety. Supplies would sometimes run out on the voyage to America, and many destitute people who did finally reach New Jersey or Philadelphia starved to death in the streets. Poorest of the population could often only afford the cheap tickets to Liverpool, and the mass emigration of the Irish to the British mainland caused immense tensions, as they almost inevitably ended up as labourers in competition for already scarce jobs. By September and October 1816, full reports of the utter humanitarian crisis in Ireland were beginning to hit home with Peel and the London Press. County Kerry, County Mayo, County Westmeath, County Fermanagh, County Antrim and County Down all reported massive flooding, wiping out what was left of the crops and the potatoes. Some fields near Jogheda were so flooded they were colonised by ducks swimming on them. Okay, if that isn't shocking enough, think about this. Most of the rural population in Ireland depended on cutting peat and turf for fuel and shelter and building materials. The rain made it sodden and useless. What meagre food there was couldn't easily be cooked, and there was no fire for warmth. Sir Robert Peel now knew he had a massive disaster on his hands, but as he said, quote, I fear we have melancholy prospects before us, and are threatened with calamities for which it is impossible to suggest a remedy. It is easy to assume that Peel might have been blind to the problems in Ireland, and came with the common hostile attitude held by most of the ruling class. But he actually commented that he regarded the Irish in a positive light, with immense potential for development. His correspondence and his replies in Parliament, often extremely positive in around 1816, he said in a reply to Sir John Newport in the House, quote, that it is impossible to see them without admiring many of their qualities, end quote. He went on to list them as being faithful, honest and chaste in marriage. He always commented on other occasions about the problems of Ireland being what we would call structural. He was scathing about the absentee gentry and felt the lack of them living in Ireland, but collecting rents from estates they owned there was holding back the economy, taking money out of the country and weakening the talent pool that would normally be the backbone of local administrations and court systems. He also attacked the free press in Ireland, which he viewed as the main cause of many of the problems in the country, since he corrupted what he viewed as an honest population, in his opinion. His view was wholly paternalistic. He was a Tory, after all. But it was based on the assumption that a local landowning gentry should actually be local, bound to the community, and incentivised to help it prosper. He wanted greater protection for some key industries to allow them to develop, and he was highly reluctant to sanction military deployments. As an interesting quote from him in the debate in Parliament, the Army Estimates in February, eighteen sixteen, the House must not suppose that the government listens to every hasty application from magistrates for a military force. Such applications often. Spring from groundless fears, and the answer invariably returned to them is that it is impossible to attend to every individual who makes them. End quote. I'm telling you this so that you understand that Peel was a clever, complicated person. He wasn't a repressive tyrant, nor did he want to commit some kind of genocide in Ireland, but he did come to the view only law and order maintained by the army, would keep the country from collapse. This was a dangerous course, though. The Protestant army in Ireland had engaged in some brutal repressions of the local population and had also suffered from some brutal reprisals or from random attacks. The use of the military in Ireland was never going to help improve social tensions or help with the necessary reforms. Still, put yourself in the shoes of the officials in many rural areas. There's no refrigeration, no trains or trucks to move food around, no mass reserves of food, no real canned goods or rations. The main bulk of foodstuff that was relatively non-perishable and transportable was grain and perhaps rice, and these weren't going to be available at short notice. And even if they were, the expense was huge, and there was no real way to distribute the food around the countryside. Administration remained primitive, and used parchment and dipped ink pens. News travelled slowly in rural Ireland, even by the standards of the 19th century in some places. Even the best of administrations was slow, but Ireland in 1816 was a society with deep structural problems rife with social and religious tension, deep issues in its government, and suffering from periodic repression from the Westminster government and British army. It is easy to blame the authorities. As the old saying goes, try walking a mile in their moccasins. When mass climate disruption hits, human societies can suffer seriously. Whilst the easy view is that the authorities are always at fault, the reality system-wide shocks far more complicated especially in a country with the difficulties faced by Ireland as if Ireland hadn't suffered enough though with almost grim inevitability disease in the form of typhus struck in September of 1816 it would kill tens of thousands of Irish people combined with the famine over a hundred thousand Irish would die this was a tragedy on an enormous scale. The fear and the helplessness goes beyond easy understanding. The typhus epidemic continued until 1819. It is ironic to note that when the great famine struck Ireland in 1845, Peel was now prime minister. Again, he was responsible for dealing with the colossal crisis in Ireland, and again he seemed initially unaware of the terrible scale the humanitarian disaster unfolding, but he would eventually come to destroy his own political party and government to appeal the corn laws, in part to help the victims of the Great Famine. In October, Northern England was again hit with ferocious floods. East Riding, Berwick, and numerous other towns were flooded, with bridges washed away and fields inundated. Labour was so cheap by now, farmers could take their pick of workers. But with no crops to harvest, there were no jobs. Cattle couldn't be fed, so were sold off at rock-bottom prices, threatening the ability of farmers to keep livestock for the following year. The very top of society, though. Lord Liverpool and his government were feeling fairly happy. They were pleased to see revenue from taxes rising, and in accordance with the classic economic theories of the times, assumed that this meant people were obviously buying more goods, so the economy was growing. Therefore, overall, the economy was actually healthy and wealthy. Low interest rates, good gold reserves, plenty of credit, and relatively low debt levels, made him feel even more confident. Any problems with the lower class weren't the problem of the government, in his view. It was for the invisible hand of the market to sort out. Private charity, not government aid, was viewed as the only possible response. The job of government was to keep spending and taxes low. Government aid was viewed as encouraging idleness. It strikes me as strange how these arguments get rehashed and go in endless cycles throughout history. Still, it seems an immense stretch to say in hindsight that the poor were at fault for the massive climate disturbance and famine in 1816, red prices were soaring. People across the country were desperate in unimaginable ways. Food riots broke out again and again. In hard-hit Wales, strikes and riots broke out. Magistrates called for troops. Eventually, as local yeomanry were not enough, veteran cavalry from Waterloo were deployed in Newport to crack what seemed to be a rebellion. Still, the government did nothing, convinced that this was revolutionary agitation rather than a sign of real distress. When 8,000 people gathered at Fields to talk about petitioning the Prince Regent in November, the temperature dropped below freezing. Snow returned. The protesters railed against high taxes Ominously, the tricolour flag of revolution was seen flying. Liberty caps were mounted on pikes, and cries went up, demanding marching on the British Bastille of Cold Fields prison. American ambassador John Quincy Adams was shocked to find people starving in the street, and Lord Castlereagh, star of our episodes on the Congress of Vienna, had his home stoned. Prince Regent refused to meet MPs petitioning for reform and Lord Liverpool refused to assemble Parliament to debate. A mob formed and marched on the Tower of London but was dispersed. This was the perfect excuse for Lord Liverpool. He summoned Parliament in January 1817 and whipped up fears that there was a revolution. So strong... Repressive legislation was needed to preserve national security. Spy networks were set up. Meetings of more than 50 people were required to obtain prior permission. A gagging act was brought in, and ancient rights of habeas corpus were effectively suspended. Meetings were broken up. Cavalry were deployed enthusiastically. Quick trials and hangings of suspected rebels became common. Transportation to Australia was increased. Great reluctance, though. Parliament was forced to enact schemes to provide loans to employers to create jobs, usually through public works like road buildings, canals, or land improvements. The response was electric and take up immense. Still wasn't enough to force Lord Liverpool to take the situation in Ireland seriously. Despite Peel's efforts, ride food to the poor and also keep a lid on serious riots. Peel's attempts to import grain failed miserably so he finally tired of waiting on Lord Liverpool. He set up his own distribution system run by five Protestants, two Quakers and a Catholic. This was shockingly radical for the time especially from a Tory and he created a small-scale financial fund based on the same model as the British schemes. It remained a drop in the ocean though, especially against the background of mutual hostility and establishment prejudice. Gradually though the year of 1816 ended and in 1817 although harsh the climate began to stabilise enough for a more normal harvest times would remain bitterly hard for the bulk of the working population of the United Kingdom and reform be strongly resisted by the ruling classes the next 15 years or so of british history was defined by the war for social reform and democratic reform and this is the backdrop victoria herself would grow up in the attitudes to the monarchy were deeply shaped by this disastrous period especially the immense unpopularity of the Prince Regent, later George IV. Without Victoria, and more especially without the brilliance of Prince Albert, is likely the damage to the monarchy done in this period would never have been repaired, and perhaps Britain would have joined the continent in the year of revolutions. In 1848, join me next time where we turn our attention across the Atlantic and discover that in America there was no escape the icy grip of the year without summer Okay, thanks for listening today I'm now going to get busy on the next show don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com catch me on twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.